Listen, we are in a series called Faith Alive, and we're going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, so I would really encourage you to read through that book several times as we're going through this series. In fact, spend some time this week just reading through uh, 1 Thessalonians. We've been in chapter 1. We've been in chapter 2. We're in chapter uh, 4 this morning. But Faith Alive is something that I think that we're not familiar with in the U.S. church. Uh, because our faith doesn't necessarily have to be alive. We have a belief system, and most of us can talk about our belief system, the things that we believe. But when you look at our lives, and this isn't to any one person. I'm including myself in this. Please know that. Anytime I'm speaking, anytime I'm bringing a message, uh, it's speaking to me too. Uh, so our, our, lives, our lives don't demonstrate Jesus. Our words might, and I would say that our words probably don't frequently enough, but our lives certainly don't. We, we can say one thing, and, and, and let me say this. The world needs to see Jesus in us, and if the world's not in here with us on Sunday morning, where's the only place that they'll see Jesus? Out there in our community. I love our Sunday morning gatherings. I love them. I think they're God-designed. However, I think what happens in this place is, is supposed to ignite something within us so that we take Jesus from these four walls, we take God and his miraculous work from these four walls into our community. That's what it is to have a faith that is living. The Christian life begins with a step of faith, and that step of faith leads us to a walk of faith. We are called to walk out our faith in such a way that our lives bring worship to God. Now, raise your hand and be honest with me. I'm, I'm diverting just a minute because that's the way my brain works. How many of you, when we prayed, you looked at your watch? Anybody? When we prayed, you were like, hmm, thank you, Jesus. Nobody's admitting it? I did. I looked at my watch. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get out on time or at least five minutes late. Talking about faith alive, listen, it's not just, I, I like to say this, the church is really good about leaving people at the altar. I don't think the church has a problem with calls for salvation, but then we just leave them there. And, and we're not supposed to, and let me say this too, discipleship really isn't the responsibility of the organization of the church. The responsibility for discipleship is placed on you as the individual Christ follower. We are, we are all the church. I am the church. You are the church. We are the church together. Now, we see discipleship happening in the organization of the church in the, in the Bible, but it was mainly happening as the disciples and the apostles and now new believers began to share what Jesus had done in their hearts and their lives when they began to share the good news. That's where discipleship begins. Discipleship isn't some theological degree that now I understand every word in Scripture and I can teach that to someone. That's not discipleship. If that happens in your life, man, that's awesome. I don't understand every word in Scripture yet, and I've been in it for a really long time. Discipleship, when I disciple someone, it's just teaching people what I already know and obey. It's hard because we like to teach people things that we find in Scripture, and sometimes we're not living out those things. Raise your hand if you're a hypocrite. Okay, I am. I, I'm that. Because there's times I say one thing and do another. I don't want that to happen in my life. But this faith coming in alive within us transforms us to where we're demonstrating Jesus to the world around us. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I love these two verses. They're so packed full of goodness. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That doesn't sound real pleasant or easy. 
Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, and get this, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If you want to know what worship is, it's the things you do that pleases God. Do not conform. This is a powerful, powerful verse. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that's the NIV. And the word conform, when it says do not conform to the pattern of this world, the word conform means this. Behave according to socially acceptable conventions or standards. Be similar in form or type. And I think it's an unfortunate thing that the church is very similar to what is socially acceptable to the standards of the world. And we can change that. We can Listen, if we want to see revival happening in our community, I always hesitate to see, say revival happening in the church because revive means I'm dead, and I'm not dead. Like, I might need to be waking up, awakened, uh, but, I'm not de- but I want to see revival happen in our community, see the dead come to life. Are you with me? Listen, I think the easiest way for us to see that happen is just by demonstrating Jesus to them demonstrating his love and his hope and his mercy and his grace. But the problem is we're too, we're too caught up looking very much like the world that we can't win the world over for Jesus. I've heard it said over and over, and, and that's why I asked us to raise our hand if you're a hypocrite, because I've invited people to church before, and, and I've heard this, and I'm really not interested in the church. It's full of hypocrites. My response is always, yes, it is, and I'm one of them. However, as we are slowly transformed, sometimes more quickly than others, but we're transformed to be more like Jesus and the world sees hope and grace and mercy and love, that's when we see the dead, that's when we see the dead come to life. Romans 12, 2, and I, this is out of the New Living Translation. That's the translation that I typically read, and I love what it says in the New, or how it says it in the New Living Translation. Romans 12, 2 says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So there's two things that we've got to work on. One is stop copying the customs, the traditions, the ways of the world. They should have no part in our lives. Now listen, I also understand that there's things that are God-ordained, God-breathed, like music. Listen, music is a creation of God himself, yet the enemy, the world, has perverted that. Right? So I'm not talking talking about some things that might be similar. I think we need to be aware of the things that would originate with the Spirit of God and and then perverted. But we've got to stop copying the customs, the traditions, the patterns of this world. The second thing that we have to do is we have to allow God to change the way we think. That's difficult. Some more difficult than others because we just don't deal with change. Some, listen, for me, like, I, I love facts. I'm a, I'm a black and white thinker. Uh, but I'm the first to admit that, man, all of a sudden I'm stuck in a way of thinking. Now, if you show me a fact that contradicts what I'm thinking, then I'm, my mind switches very quickly. But I don't do well with just arguments and debates and, and stuff like that. But here's the thing. We've got to ask God to change the way we think because even in the church, we're stuck in a pattern of thinking that causes us to live like the world. This is not in my notes, but I need to get back to them. We've got to get to a place where we're living like Jesus in a world that is completely against him. We've got to ask 
We've got to ask God, and this needs to be happening every day in our lives, change the way we think, because many of us, including myself, can get stuck in a way of thinking or a rut of thinking. Somebody said years ago, a rut is just a grave with no end. I'm like, whoa, that's powerful. But we've got to ask God to change the way we think, because even us as Christ followers, we're stuck in this way of thinking that is not uh, seeing people come to know Jesus. Let's watch this video real quick. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle, and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike, ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know what you're probably thinking. Destin's probably just an uncoordinated engineer and can't do it. But that's not the case at all. The algorithm that's associated with riding a bike in your brain is just that complicated. Think about it. Downwards force on the pedals, leaning your whole body, pulling and pushing the handlebars, gyroscopic precession in the wheels. Every single force is part of this algorithm. And if you change any one part, it affects the entire control system. So here's what I did. It was a personal challenge. I stayed out here in this driveway and I practiced about five minutes every day. My neighbors made fun of me. I had many wrecks, but after eight months, this happened. One day I couldn't ride the bike, and the next day I could. It was like I could feel some kind of pathway in my brain that was now unlocked. It was really weird though. It's like there's this trail in my brain, but if I wasn't paying close enough attention to it, my brain would easily lose that neural path and jump back onto the old road it was more familiar with. Any small distractions at all, like a cell phone ringing in my pocket, would instantly throw my brain back to the old control algorithm and I would wreck. But at least I could ride it. All right, today's bike log. I can ride smooth, I can ride fast. I'm thinking the experiment is over. Yeah, so the funny part is he mentioned right at the beginning of the video, he, video, he goes to Amsterdam and he hooks up with somebody that's got a bike there. Many people actually have bikes here. And he could not ride a normal bike. Could not ride a normal bike. Now here's the thing that it demonstrates it, and he says that our brains get stuck in a pattern of thinking. And even though all of us would say, well, I mean, I think I could ride a It seems pretty... Okay, I, I know now. I just turned to the left to go right, turned to the right. And, go, and he couldn't, did you hear what he said? It took him eight months. Eight months. And here as I, as I watched that video and I was going through the message for this morning, it demonstrates the, the difficulty that even us as Christ followers face in just changing the way that we think so the patterns of our life no longer represent the world and represent Jesus. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should not live as the world lives or live just to please ourselves. Every day we should please God in how we live our lives. So we're kind of focusing on 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 through 12, although I don't have time uh, to read all of those verses. 
But authentic faith must change who we are and how we live. Let me say that again. Authentic faith must change who we are and how we live. The focus of our lives is to honor God in all that we do. So let's just look at three points. Living to please God. The first is this. We have to control our passions. How many of you would say you're a pretty passionate person? Yeah, I am. I get pretty passionate about anything that I do, but we've got to control our passions. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, and I wish I had like another hour to talk about this, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8 says this. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction, the instructions that we just read, does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Sanctification is the process of being separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. Holiness does not involve withdrawing from the world so much as participating in the world in a different way. Listen, when I think about sexuality and what we see in, in our nation today, it, it saddens me because it saddens the heart of God. And, and the same mentality, the same perspective of sexuality in the world is now in the church. We read articles and we see it on the news. And maybe you're hearing stories about even denominations that are bending and folding to the ways of the world. When we see this right here, we're responsible. It's in scripture. He's given it to us and we're responsible for not just knowing what the Bible says, what God says about sexuality, but also living that out in a demonstration. And I'm, listen, I'm there with you because I'm so, I'm, I'm so black and white thinking it's right or it's wrong. I've had to spend a lot of time in prayer for God to give me compassionate when I see someone who's living contrary to God's word and, they just, and, they, and they're convinced that it's okay. Because I've had many, many conversations with Christ followers as I take them to Scripture and I show them what God says about sexuality and they're living in a a way that contradicts that for some reason, and I can't wrap my mind around it, they're convinced that their truth is God's truth. Listen, there's only one truth. This is the importance of us knowing Scripture. We can't bounce back and forth between the truth that I know And then the truth that God knows. No, the truth that God knows and has declared is the truth that I need to know and I need to declare. And there's ways that we do that. And this is the hard part for me is being compassionate. Let me back up just a minute, because if if we're talking about someone who doesn't know Jesus, there should be no expectation in our life that they would live like they do. But we as Christ followers, we have, to be, we have to be better about speaking into the lives of our brothers and sisters, not just in the area of sexuality, but in every area of sin that we're better about with compassion, love, grace, and mercy, calling that out. Listen, if you ever hear me say something or do something that contradicts the personhood of God or the personhood of Jesus, call me out on it. I hope that the Holy Spirit does right away. In fact, last week, I even said something, that right after I said it, I said, I shouldn't say, I called children dumb. I wasn't like calling every child. But anyways, I, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that, right? But here we are in this area of sexuality as we come to God's word is there clearly. 
It's there clearly. God created us to have sexual passions. However, he's also created the saving, the confines of where those passions are operated or demonstrated. And we just have to be loving. We have to be filled with grace. But we have to stand on the truth of God's word because people's lives depend on it. Their eternity depends on it. When I was in Virginia, we had several uh, homosexual couples in our congregation, and I loved them. They, some of them became really good friends. Some of the, a few of them worked at social services, and we developed a fantastic relationship with social services, not just be from being a foster parent, uh, but just how we would serve uh, them as a, as a church with, in different ways. But here's the thing. When, when we come to this area of sexuality, so many times we all will all of a sudden take this right hard bend and focus so much attention on that that we forget the own sin that's in our life. However, we have to focus on it. We can't allow these passions that, that are within us to take us from a place that we're living and demonstrating Jesus to where we begin to live and demonstrate the world and I'm, I'm talking about a homosexual or a heterosexual relationship, right? Because there's just as much sin in heterosexual relationships as there is in homosexual relationships. But that's the first way, one of the ways that we can live to please God is make sure that even the, the passage, especially when it, when it comes to sin in our lives, it's just, it, it is amazing, oh my goodness, it's 1032. It's amazing for me to think that Jesus, when he was a 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 18-year-old boy, that he did not sin any sin because of me. Like he wanted to die, he needed to die for me, sinless. I think, wow, if he could do that. I mean, can't I begin to change the way that I think about certain things and, and, and at least live somewhat like him? We have to control our passions. First Peter 1, 14 to 16 says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil. We see that word again. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I love if you read through the letters of Paul, he is consistently giving you the contrast between the life that you once lived and the life that you're supposed to live now. He's consistently saying this is the way that the world or pagans live and this is the way that we as Christ followers are supposed to live. I'm saying let's pay attention to that. Let's pay attention to that. We're talking about it in Thessalonica. I mean, it would have been a, it would have been a city much like a, a lot of the other cities we see in Scripture uh, where, where sexuality was lived out in the streets and not just in the streets, but in the temples. We even see later on that some Christians were reverting back to sexual acts as a part of worship, and Paul had to correct their way of thinking, to correct their way of living. So it was real to them. Yet Paul is calling them to live to a standard that Jesus lived, and he's calling us, God is still calling us today to live to that standard. Holy living that pleases God requires avoiding sexual immorality, covering a range of sexual sin that goes against God's design for sex, which is one man and one woman for life. Listen, we have Christ followers, especially parents, listen to me. We've got to be so aware of what's happening in the world around us. Not to separate, separate ourselves in a way of, well, that's them and this is us. There's no that's them and this is us. Jesus came and gave his life for everyone. 
Somehow we've got to figure out how we live in this world that is broken and dark, but still look just like Jesus and shine his light. Controlling our bodies and passions rather than being controlled by them. Not manipulating others for our own sexual pleasures. That's the first one. Again, I wish I had a lot of time to spend on that. It's an important topic. Here's a second way that we live out to please God or live a life that's pleasing to God. We live, we live out love. First Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Listen, we have got to love the world around us, and we've got to love the world around us enough to demonstrate Jesus to them. The love of God we have received and experienced is now to be lived out in our relationship with others. We see that in John 13. Now we're constantly living out and demonstrating the love that Jesus has for those around us. Listen, we, can, we cannot escape the command to love, nor can we excuse when we fail to love. We can't escape this command, yet we've become really good about excusing why I can't love that person. Well, I mean, I can't love, God doesn't expect me to love that person. God knows what he's done to me. God, God knows what she said about me. God can't expect me to love that person. He absolutely does. Yet even as Christ followers, and I'm saying this for myself, sometimes all of a sudden I catch myself in this way of like, well, maybe I don't have to love them that much. Maybe I can love them from a distance. Do we know Jesus ever loving somebody from a distance? No. Right? He left heaven to come to be with us, to love us. So I'm with you. It's difficult. We can't escape the command to love. And I'm saying if there's a person that popped up in your mind as soon as I started to mention it, that's the person that's God's, God's saying, you better start demonstrating my love for them more and more. And maybe your love for them hasn't developed yet, but it will if you're demonstrating Jesus' love. Let's look at the third thing. Be responsible. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business. Don't you love, I, love, I love God's word. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. What is this verse saying? I wish I had time to go through the passage. He's talking about Christ followers who just become idle, who become idle. And then what happens in your life when you become idle? Because now you start picking up all this other stuff that is very much not godly. And Paul is, is challenging them to not be idle. To be responsible in the way that we live as Christ followers. To keep on demonstrating more and more of who Jesus is to the world around us. And I know so many, nobody in this place, I'm not speaking to anybody here. But I, I would love to have an overall statistic. I can tell you this, that generally the statistic of those who serve even within the church is extremely, extremely low. And God is calling us to serve each other, but more than that, he's calling us to serve the community around us. In other words, not, not be idle. Find another way and another way and another way to demonstrate who Jesus is. As we've seen that passage, we're not supposed to create trouble for others. How many of you love to argue? I do. I love, I love to argue. 
But the Bible says we're not supposed to create trouble. We're not supposed to antagonize. How about this one? Let your work be your worship and your witness. And then be responsible. Be responsible. This is all wrapped up in the same passage. Be responsible and provide for your family. Listen, as we close, listen to this statement. A holy life is not an ascetic or gloomy or solitary life, but a life regulated by divine truth and faithful in Christian duty. It is living above the world while we are still in it. Let's close our eyes. I want to read Psalms 12 verses 1 and 2 again because I want our response to be based on this verse. And it says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Now listen to this verse. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. So as your eyes are closed, let's just ask the Holy Spirit to show you a side-by-side comparison of your life, listing out the things you do or say in your daily life. And as that list is being formed, allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate things that are exactly the same or similar to the world's standards. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you examine your own life in these very short moments where you begin to see the many things that you do or say, the patterns of your own life that would resemble the world. And then ask Him to illuminate the areas of your life that resemble Jesus. God, I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. I thank you personally, God, for your patience, (laughs) the patience that you have with me. God, I want to be a person who demonstrates your son's love and grace and mercy in every moment of every day of my life. God, I want my life to be what you've called me to be, and that's a light in a very dark world. I pray that not only in this moment, but moments to come throughout today and this week, that you would continue to confront me and challenge me with the areas in my life that resemble the world and don't resemble Jesus. And then God, as this Romans 12 said, transform me into a new person by changing the way I think. Change the way I think, oh God. Change the way that I live, oh God. Lord, you're an awesome and merciful God. I pray that this week you would move upon our hearts to demonstrate the love of Jesus to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. 